This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. now no doubt that we're going to see a lot more strikes this winter. NHS nurses will be taking industrial action in the run-up to Christmas. Is that a way to treat the people that's caring for the patients that we need to look after and for the people of our populations? No, it's not. It's absolutely not. And something must be done about this. The list of workers who are either striking or seriously thinking about it seems to get longer every week. So far, a majority of the public seems to support them, but Rishi Sunak's government is still sticking to its anti-union stance. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister says he's going to reset Britain's relationship with China. Now, let's be clear, the so-called golden era is over. All this goes with the grain of Rishi Sunak's relaunch plan, which reportedly, and somewhat cringingly, is called Operation Get Tough. Should we laugh or take it seriously? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's Raphael Bear and Zoe Williams. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, John. Um, today, we are going to be talking about two big things. Strikes, first of all. Uh, we are facing what fans of political cliche might call a winter of discontent, with nurses, rail and mail workers and more all due to imminently go ahead and take strike action. Let's hear, first of all... Um, the voice of Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, who was recently on ITV and said this. Over this past decade, our nursing staff's pay has dropped behind by 20%. And at the same time, what has happened to the, those ministers? Their pay has risen by more than 20%. I think those figures speak for themselves about who's looking after who here and the price that's put on caring and treating patients that we should be looking after every day. By way of a bit more detail, this week we heard that nurses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland are going to strike on the 15th and 20th of December. Up to 100,000 nurses are going to walk out. This is unprecedented, certainly in England. Some ambulance trusts announced on Tuesday that they're going to see strikes too. And the people involved in those stoppages will join postal workers and rail staff who've already announced they'll strike over several days in the run-up to Christmas. And so the question then is, where's all this heading? Zoe, nurses coming out, it's quite a moment, isn't it? It's quite a moment, and it's, it's it's kind of bigger even than it looks, I think, with the nurses. They're really accessing kind of campaigner-stroke organi- community organiser models in a way that I don't think they have before. And it's really showing, right? The, their language is more radical. They sound more kind of naturally left-wing. They're, re- they're really kind of tapping into that Mick Lynch energy, I think. Are they, sound- are they sounding like they're good at PR? I mean, I, th- I, I saw, for example, a slogan the other week you know, it's an obvious one, but claps don't pay the bills, which is pretty good. You know, that's quite effective. What it is with strikes, it's like train strikes. 
inconvenience a large number of people and nurses strikes in inconvenience people more but fewer people i don't think they're going to be hit by it reputationally in the way that i imagine the government hopes they will do you think so raf yeah i'm i'm not entirely sure about that because i think that the there's probably the use of the word inconvenience there is where is why i was sort of hesitated because yeah, it might be more than that. there is a difference between having your commute kind of cancelled and having your operation postponed they're just such qualitatively different things i agree that the the, the, the the national mood is such particularly after the pandemic that there's so much goodwill towards uh frontline health workers generally and ill will towards the government that to what extent would ministers be well advised to to sort of think that they can just ride this out and the public will turn against nurses. I'm not sure about that. But at the same time, ultimately, there are only really two types of government response to a strike. One is intransigence in the hope that the public get fed up with strikers. And the other one is negotiation to get it over and done with and, and finish it. And clearly, as you said a moment ago, John, this is going to go the latter route because I just don't think the government has the political capital to try the format. And it isn't like rail workers where they can actually sustain a strike for quite a long time, ultimately, because people just work from home. I mean, the other question is, I suppose, in terms of the public's response to it, whether it'll be understood as something even bigger than a set of big questions about the cost of living and the failure of people's living standards to keep up with it whether or not this level of strike action then will feed into people's negative perceptions of the government and somehow, you know, a, a, a critical majority of the electorate will say, well, this is this is another example of the fact that these people don't know what they're doing and it's 12 years of failure increasingly and all that stuff. There's a the useful parallel here with the um, rail strikes is that even when the trains aren't on strike, the trains are still shit, right? And that is something that was, that, 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 that you know, Mark Harper went to... The Pennines to talk about this morning, why everything's broken. And I think the danger for the government is not that people make a kind of really sustained connecting the dots case that they've been underfunding the NHS for 12 years. It's more that they just have become associated with people under whom things are broken, whether unions are out on strike or not. I think that's right. I think there, there is, if it feeds a broader sense of collective incompetence, uh, and that, you know, you look at the sort of the long term decline in the conservative poll rating, you strip out some of the volatility around you know, this trust blowing everything up and then a bit of a bounce back because Rishi Sunak looks a little bit more serious and Boris Johnson and Partygate, all the various sort of ups and downs. What has happened over time is people getting fed up Tory government and stuff not working. And that and so if the the political hope is that you can sort of lean into an argument which says, well, no one's getting a pay rise, so you can't just privilege one group o over another. We all have to just tighten our belts and weather this. There are three problems with that. First, nurses are not trained operators. They're nurses, and people have a different level of sympathy. Uh, I think the same is true with ambulance drivers. Two, well, look, no one's getting a pay rise isn't actually a defence of the government when you've been in power for 12 <laughs> years and everyone's just feeling everything's really rubbish and can't afford their bills. And the third one, which I can't remember, which is always the risk when starting a sentence saying there are three reasons. That's good, but <laughs> while you're somewhere. trying to remember that, let's return to something you mentioned a moment ago, which is this sense that the government is sort of conveying this image of a stubborn intransigence, you know, barely barely saying we're going to have any meaningful negotiations with these people. You know, our stance is just going to sit here and say, no, you're not having a pay rise, shut up. This is what Rishi Sunak said in Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday when he was asked about the postal workers' strike. 
It is not the right approach to go on strike, especially demanding pay, as we have heard, that is simply unaffordable for hardworking British taxpayers. The Honourable Lady would do well to see that, because in the context that we're in, it is simply not possible to give people the type of pay demands that they are making. I remember what I was going to You say. remembered? I remember the third one. <laughs> go on, quickly, and I want to ask you about what Rishi Sunak said. Yeah, I can be very quick. It's that, that Rishi Sunak looks weak. He doesn't make the political weather, right. and so ultimately he just doesn't Yeah, so it's a sort of weedy yeah. Mr Beanish impersonation of intransigence and stubbornness. The question then is, Zoe, whether it'll last, right? Whether the government's saying, look, we don't want anything to do with these people. Strikes are a bad thing. They're sort of depending, aren't they, on a received traditional idea that the public or a majority of the public necessarily doesn't like strikes and doesn't like unions, whether that will last or whether sooner or later there'll have to be some movement. So there's something really interesting that Francis O'Grady said to me years ago, which is often part of the negotiation is nobody's allowed to dance down the steps afterwards. So you often don't get a sense of what a successful strike has been. They're not saying we asked for 11%, but actually we're really, really happy with 8%. Everybody goes very, very quiet after a successful negotiation because it's just the terms of the deal. Now, I think what's changed in that is, you know, just a much, much greater visibility for, you know, the postal workers unions, for RMT. I want to come on to that, but I want to know about the government and whether or not this... this 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 sort of image of intransigence and stubbornness, whether that's going to last, whether they can sustain it. You know, it's like negotiating with, with kidnappers. It's really important for them that they don't look like they cave every time because it just makes the next time more likely that they're going to cave. But the truth is, I don't think that that intransigence and the kind of intransigence we saw earlier in the year about the train strikes, you know, it's like the public will turn against these strikers because they're ruining everybody's commute, etc., it does rely on a groundswell of public support for an intransigent government. I just don't think that's there anymore. Uh, just to avoid sounding like we're assuming that, that the unions will come out largely on the winning side and the government necessarily is weak and sort of doomed to failure here. It's not inconceivable that things might turn and that certain, uni- certain unions might overplay their hand and we might be only one or two horror stories away from the right wing papers really having something to go on and try to turn the public mood. Well, exactly. There's no question that it is a risk if ambulance workers and nurses go on strike. Industrial action, you, you are withdrawing care in the health service uh, from people who aren't in a position to pay your wages one way or another, but need your care. So that is, bluntly speaking, that is a very different, different political trading proposition to withdrawing train service from people. And so uh, I think the nurses certainly you know, will be well aware of that, but also... The ministers, you know, Steve Barclay is clearly, you know, yes, the, the position is intransigent, but the tone is not, it's is, is not even the one that Jeremy Hunt was taking towards the junior doctors from when they went on strike. Yeah. The, the, the body language is much more cautious in recognition of where the understanding of the default for public sympathy is at the moment. So it seems to be that both sides are, are still circling around in a kind of a negotiation tacitly around where where public sympathy will go on this it's interesting though what you'll get then is something we're getting increasingly used to and again i don't want to sound sort of complacent from the political perspective of the of the left so to speak but which is really the daily mail and the telegraph hyperventilating about this that and the other and it not really reflecting the public mood right because once these once the strikes ascend to an even greater pitch, which is what's going to happen, you will get Daily Mail front page after Daily Mail front page saying this is the end of civilization, and you'll get that very interesting spectacle of that not really reflecting a very sizable part of public opinion at all. And then the shift will begin, and then and and you'll see that happening in terms of 
people starting to realise in the in the sort of the more pragmatic end of the newsrooms of the Mail and Telegraph uh, <laughs> and even the Express that it's, it might be worth sucking up to Keir Starmer a little bit and, and the, the whole cult, the wind will change. Talking of talking of which, then, let's talk briefly about Keir Starmer. Rishi Sunak tries to taunt him, doesn't he, about this? It's one of his stock lines. Oh, your MPs are going to be on picket lines. The unions are your paymasters. You're in their pockets and all the rest of it. Now, Keir Starmer is being quite sort of standoffish, really, about, about these strikes in the sense that he makes sort of sympathetic noises. We all know where he is on MPs and, and shadow ministers appearing on picket lines. Understandably, you could argue. He could just sort of sit this one out, can't he? It, I know some people think it's a great moral failing that there aren't shadow ministers on picket lines, but pragmatically, he can just step to one side and let this grind on. But look, it, it, it's always happens. It's always like, well, you don't need to get your hands dirty with this. You don't, you know, you, there's more political capital. There's more media capital to be gained from not having anything to stick on you or your cabinet or your shadow cabinet than to be gained from coming out in favour of strikes that like everybody knows, you know, you're the Labour Party. In your DNA, you're in favour of industrial action. So everybody already knows that. There's much more risk for Keir and for the shadow cabinet in not actually showing any solidarity than they seem to think. Really? Right? Because it's... Yeah, yeah I disagree. Because, I don't agree with that. Well, I... Well, I know you. I know you don't. And probably his advisors think exactly what you think. But the truth of it is, no. I saw, can I just say I sort of wish they were, but I just, but I, but I understand why they're not. His whole challenge is to become a person for the electorate. Right? There's no point in leading the leading the Conservatives by twenty point, points in the polls if you don't go to the ballot box as a real person who people can understand who they are. You know, if one minute you're seeing a picture of him on a miners picket line, his whole kind of historical identity was one thing. And then suddenly as leader, he's another thing and nobody can expect anything of him. It's very hard for that person to crystallise into a real Oh, I don't think there's any, I don't think anybody beyond the likes of us knows that Keir Starmer back in 1985 was on a miners picket line. Look, just it's it's not a media bubble thing, right? People want to see that some, you know, if you're the leader of the Labour Party, a lot of people want to know whether you're in favour yeah. of industrial Right, let's action. have an argument, it's Raph. So why do you disagree? I, I disagree. The, the, the job that Keir Starmer is applying for in the eyes of the electorate is Prime Minister of Great Britain uh, with a team of people in Labour MPs who will run the country. Bluntly speaking, the people who really want him to express solidarity with striking workers as the manifestation of his politics in that respect are voting Labour already. And what he definitely needs to do is to show a lot of other people that he can actually just run the place with competence and seriousness and professionalism in a way that they do not associate with the Labour Party and really, really haven't associated with the Labour Party for quite a long time, especially not because they remember Jeremy Corbyn as being the exact opposite of that. And what he very clearly has to do in that respect is say, look, strikes are the government's failure. What we need is a different government, not strikes are an expression of workers' solidarity and I'm with the strikers. Those are two completely different propositions. Plus, Zoe, it makes no odds whether he's whether he is explicitly involved and endorses the strikes. It makes no difference. So what, so... The thing is, you two, is that this comes <laughs> to the very, very heart of the arguments we always have, which are... What you a surprise. Think, you think that a Labour government wins when it seems least Labour. No, I, I don't think that. that. Actually, that's a, no, that's a complete actually, caricature of my position. Is, it, is a complete, it is a completely legitimate thing to stand in front of an electorate and say, I am the leader of the Labour Party, and that is the source of my competence. No, I'm not Labour and also competent. I am 
competent because I am Labour and I have this vision for the way Labour would run a country. You miss a trick when you think that Labour has no legitimacy for people as a potential government. Sure, they haven't been in power for a long time. I think that helps. And I do think that, that, that you know, people are kind of instinctively, if you look at how popular union leaders are at the moment, people instinctively respond to quite trenchant arguments that the, the, the kind of media class absolutely won't admit as part of the political spectrum. Okay. There's a very substantial difference between defining Labour as being on the side of working people and working interests and a candidate to be Labour Prime Minister identifying himself and his MPs with a with what is effectively a protest standing on a picket line being a protest organisation, not a potential government. Those are actually just fundamentally different propositions. How do you say I'm on the side of working people and defending their interests, but I absolutely won't allow them to take any power for themselves? I mean, what 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 even is that? What is that? What I'm saying is there's clearly a difference between so Labour MPs, or more importantly, shadow ministers standing on picket lines. They're not nurses. They will just be standing there as part of a protest, which is or as part of a picket, which is a distinct function from the function they actually have, which is as MPs representing their constituencies, legislators going to Parliament wanting to be ministers. Those are two completely different things. So, so what is, is your point of workflow analysis point that they should be doing their job? Because they wouldn't be on the picket line for very long. They're there to say a strike is a legitimate act from people trying to retake their power. That's all they're doing it for. They can say that without standing on a picket line. OK, this is good. Some some people listening to this will agree that with Zoe, that Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all should be standing on picket lines. And some people will agree with me and Raf that these things might be more delicate and fraught with risk than they may appear. And more to the point, are not part, necessarily part of their job description. So let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll be looking at China and what Rishi Sunak means when he says that we have reached the end of our golden era with that country. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. We will now uh, move to a potentially slightly calmer section of the podcast, but we shall see. Uh, certainly the, what it's centred on isn't calm at all. For the past few days, news out of China has mostly been about this. Never! 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 
Protests about China's stringent authoritarian COVID restrictions have been sort of fascinating and alarming to watch in equal measure. I suppose the spectacle of protest in very, very authoritarian countries is always amazing to see, just apart from anything else because of the sheer level of bravery it involves. But this one also is in the context of this incredible zero COVID system which has been built in China, which if you read about what that involves in terms of human experience, is sort of mind-boggling. And as much as we think um, that the world has escaped the worst of the pandemic, it's still going on. Now, perhaps not coincidentally, this week Rishi Sunak made Beijing the focus of his first major speech on foreign policy since he became Prime Minister. He warned that China was moving towards ever greater authoritarianism in a speech he gave on Monday night at the Lord Mayor's Banquet in London. Now, let's be clear, the so-called golden era is over, along with the naive idea that trade would automatically lead to social and political reform. But nor should we rely on simplistic Cold War rhetoric. We recognise China poses a systemic challenge to our values and interests, a challenge that grows more acute as it moves towards even greater authoritarianism. Clearly, questions about the UK's relationship with China are massively relevant to this country's foreign policy, for a start, and also its economy. We are now joined, I'm pleased to say, by Tanya Brannigan, one of The Guardian's leader writers and the paper's former China correspondent, who will explain and shine light on, on some of what is going on here. First of all, the protests in China in the context of um, its stringent COVID restrictions, Tanya. What is going on and why now, as far as those protests are concerned? I think it's a combination of things. So clearly the frustration's been building up for a while. But I mean, for the first year and a half to two years, zero COVID actually seemed like a pretty good deal to most people in China. So while everybody else was living under lockdowns and couldn't go to clubs and all of that, um, all my friends in Beijing and Shanghai were having very nice lives, which seemed to be carrying on just as they were. What's changed is that clearly with mass vaccination, the rest of the world has kind of returned to normal. And meanwhile, it's become clear that elimination is just not feasible, um, particularly with sort of more uh, transmissible variants. And so China is has become sort of caught in this situation where it um, has been clamping down, locking down, first of all cities, then trying to make it a little bit less restrictive by doing sort of compounds or districts or so forth, but it's just had more and more of an impact on people's lives. So people have got frustrated and then you add in, of all things, the World Cup, uh, which I think did make a difference because people looked at these crowds of maskless people in Qatar having a good time and they realised that all this stuff they'd been told about how sort of terrible the rest of the world was, you know, that you, it wasn't just about um, America being reckless and letting a million people die, but actually there seemed to be quite a lot of people around the world who were able to sort of get together and have a good time. And I think on some very sort of instinctive level, that was quite shocking to people. And and then the other sort of the darker side of it was obviously the fact that we had these deaths in Xinjiang, in Urumqi, the capital, um, where there was a fire and a family, including children, couldn't get out. And that was the spark. And from there, we saw these protests spread pretty quickly. Let's talk about things from a, a British perspective. Um, the other thing sort of swirling around issues um, to do with Britain's relationship with China are just stories that one reads online, which sort of 
they're not conspiracy theory because they seem rooted in fact, but they read a bit like conspiracy theory. I was reading before we started this about the premises of what appears to be an estate agent in Hendon. And the idea is that, that behind the front of this estate agent effectively is a is a branch of the repressive Chinese state, which which is used to go after dissidents, among other people, in the UK. What do you think of all that? I mean, it is pretty extraordinary. To put it into context, these centres do appear to have been set up primarily to do things like help Chinese people kind of process driving licence renewals if they're living in Europe and so forth. But this report that was done by a sort of human rights organisation basically found that these centres do seem to have also been being used to pursue people in China. Now, in many cases, that will be over issues like fraud, for example. But clearly, that does still um, pose all kinds of issues around the, the fact that Chinese police and officialdom is sort of security apparatus is kind of working within other countries through informal channels, bypassing all the official means that they have uh, to pursue these kinds of cases. And then on top of that, the increased concern is, as you say, is that in at least a couple of cases, uh, it, they do seem to have been used to sort of go after dissidents. But what I find in a way more remarkable about all of this is that this has been brought to uh, to light by a fairly small rights group sort of doing this research themselves. And you think, if we keep being told by our intelligence services that China is such a threat, you know, where were they? Why, why were all these centres being set up? Now, that ex- extraordinary story is sort of one part of the mood music around what Rishi Sunak said. I mean, there are other things as well. The treatment of a man who was protesting outside the Chinese consulate in Manchester, the fact that we're now, I don't know how much this counts for, my knowledge of diplomatic etiquette isn't all that, but the Chinese ambassador has been summoned to speak to the government formally three times in the last few months. And then that leads us on then to what Rishi Sunak said at the Lord Mayor's Banquet, that this golden era of relations with China, which I suppose reached a peak while David Cameron and George Osborne were around and the idea that large parts of the UK economy were now opened up to Chinese interests and so on. What do you make of of Sunak trying to sort of convey this idea that there's an abrupt change in Britain's relationship with China. I mean, there's clearly been a huge shift in the way that not only the UK, but people right across Europe um, and many other countries view China. A lot of that is to do with China's own behaviour, the fact it's behaving so much more forcefully abroad, uh, the increase in internal repression we've seen. I mean, even before Xi Jinping took over, um, but particularly since. Um, But I think you also have to say that if you look at uh, the UK, for example, that it's also about the transatlantic relationship and the fact that the US has very clearly uh, positioned itself in a certain place. And that means that the UK is therefore sort of likely to follow suit. You know, when people like Sunak talk, there's a lot of talk about naivety and so forth. And I just think it's a very generous way of looking at it. And I'd say it had much more to do with wishful thinking. And frankly, just a a wish to make money uh, and hope we could sort of set everything else aside and not worry too deeply about it. So we had George Osborne, of course, going off on this trip to Xinjiang when he was Chancellor, talking about the golden relationship. Now, that's before we knew about the camps and things, but there were, to put it mildly, already extremely strong human rights concerns about what was happening in the region. He was quite happy to go off there in a way that really was just a delight to China. You know, they wanted um, high-level politicians visiting it, sort of putting their stamp of approval on sort of Chinese policies in the region. And he was quite happy to sort of do all that. So I don't think it was uh, a case that we sort of didn't know 
what was involved. I think it was a, a case that sort of Britain made a choice that it was fine and we didn't see it as a problem. Just in conclusion, do you think that the messages Sunak sending out and the stance that he, he wants people to think he's taking, that that could have quite meaningful economic consequences? I mean, you know, it's been announced this week that China General Nuclear, a big Chinese um, state-owned energy company, is no longer going to be holding the Sizewell C nuclear power station, right? So... Is, is the end point of this a sort of decoupling of China and the UK economy? That would be sort of unthinkable, wouldn't it? Our economy is far too dependent on China for that to happen. I mean, it's very clear that the two sides don't trust each other. It's very clear that we are seeing the world diverge to an extent that we hadn't expected, but at the same time that people do want to avoid a second Cold War because China's just so integrated into the global economy there's so much sort of mutual dependence. And plus, of course, uh, all the things we always say but are absolutely true, you can't solve the climate emergency, most obviously, unless you're talking to China. So there's going to be a limit um, on the divergence. But I think whatever sort of Rishi Sunak says, the reality is that companies are already thinking again. I mean, partly uh, because they look at a sort of a political system that's introduced things like the zero COVID regulations, um, they look at the crackdown that took place in Hong Kong and the sort of the dismantling of freedoms there. And they sort of think, are we actually able to do business there? I don't think it's even a, a moral stance. It's people making a very pragmatic decision about where they have their Asia headquarters, for example, or where they are importing goods from. You know, how much sense does it make uh, for these things to be in China? Right. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. I now know about 10 times as much as I did at the start of that conversation. Uh, let's talk about this through the prism of, of British politics and um, and the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak and so on. Raf, it does seem sort of mind-boggling looking back at the Cameron and Osborne years and the sort of enthusiasm with which they both pursued economic and political political relationships with China and this sort of what we were told was an assumption within that that you know if we were more economically integrated with China then China would move progressively along a path towards greater democracy and political freedom and so on well first of all it was incredibly complacent i think but also weirdly glib i mean i do remember at the time when they were doing <laughs> really? that david cameron well exactly no it was you know on paper it was a very significant strategic pivot that uk foreign policy was making but uh, you know i remember at the time talking to people and understanding it didn't really have much of a strategic foundation i remember someone in downing street actually saying to me like because remember they were doing the global britain was the message you know it was even before brexit was a thing and Plan A had been to make India the focus of that. And the diplomacy with India didn't really come off as well. And so they just, you know, Osborne and Cameron said, OK, well, China then, you know, that was plan B. I mean, it might not have been quite that facile, but I'm, I'm given to understand it wasn't far off that level of facile. Uh, and there was underpinning that, I think, was some of uh, the re residue of post-Cold War arrogance and complacency that essentially the West was the sort of the supreme model and you know, China was essentially a, a, both a market and a provider of capital uh, and would just if ultimately end up being part of that global uh, financial architecture within which the Western model was couldn't be challenged ultimately. And in that, that the balance of power really shifted. And I just wanted to pick up on something very important that Tanya said, which is the, the sort of the transatlantic element of this and how much of Rishi Sunak's current position on China will be very deliberately and very clearly about signalling to Washington, if we are forced to pick a side, obviously we'll pick the side of the US. And that's slightly distinct from the European position, 
uh, where also there is a lot of Chinese money and Chinese investment, uh, particularly for Germany, China's incredibly important partner. And someone involved in foreign policy on the Brussels side of this expressed it very well to me once, which was to say that Europe doesn't like what China does. Washington doesn't like what China is. The, the fact that you could have a superpower that it offers geostrategic parity, rivalry, even overtaking the US is an existential thing for America and its self-identity in a way that just Europe is a different kind of power. So that's the context I think it's important to understand this in. Okay. So Zoe, clearly America wants members of the so-called Western Alliance to perhaps strike these slightly more hardline notes in their dealings with China. But there's also a question here about Rishi Sunak himself as someone who wants to sort of define himself politically and send out signals about the sort of prime minister he is and what his foreign policy is going to be. And it goes with the grain of what we what we were told over the weekend is something called Operation Gets Off, which is actually, it seems, about so-called small boats and protesters and so on. But clearly he doesn't want people to carry on thinking he's ineffectual and Mr Bean and he can't knock the skin off a rice pudding. Well, that's, I mean, it's really interesting that you would go there to indicate his toughness, because I think the to the small boats and protesters, you know, they're becoming increasingly a kind of authoritarian, repressive government. The, the, I think the thing is, and this has been kind of really unmasked by the situation in Ukraine as well, there was a really long time that might even have predated David Cameron, where, the, where capitalism was the highest liberal value, right? So it's like, if, if a nation was a kind of recognisable capitalist system, then that just passed for democracy that just they, they were kind of considered interchangeable and it okay so maybe that maybe their human rights weren't quite up to it and maybe this wasn't quite right but you know they, they were so enmeshed economically that they had to create a narrative in which politics weren't that different yeah yeah but but the interesting tension here is that the economic part of that still remains true so so you you wonder then how the UK can sort of marry those two things together. It's, and this arrives at a very interesting juncture, right? So we all know the damage Brexit has done to the economy. And I suppose it could be argued that as nice as it is to see a slightly more ethical foreign policy and Rishi Sunak giving voice to that, that's maybe a luxury the UK can't afford at the minute. My hunch is that Rishi Sunak is just playing to a crowd of his imagination and he hasn't actually played out what would happen if relations did break down really catastrophically because we've kind of weathering these really strong headwinds in the breakdown of trade with the EU. This probably isn't the time for him to start another major schism. But he means it, doesn't he? In the sense that the very fact that the Chinese involvement in Sizewell Sea has been cancelled shows you this isn't just posturing. There is something substantial going on here. I think there's also, it's important to distinguish between Rishi Sunak, the, the view he takes when he's sitting in the Treasury thinking about where, you know, how on earth you're going to finance infrastructure and where the money's going to come from. And then you move to number 10 and you sit down with the head of MI6 and the, the security services and you just you just get a different level of the understanding of the geostrategic dynamics and you will become more hawkish about China immediately as a result of that. As soon as you take responsibility for national security, you are going to be more hawkish towards Beijing than you would have been when you were just sitting in the Treasury. Last question, I suppose, is is what this tells you about uh, the internal politics of the Conservative Party and this sense, although Rishi Sunak is meant to have steadied the ship and calmed it all down, they are really still at sixes and sevens. And even on this, there is a big difference in the sense that there are quite a few very vocal Conservative MPs who say that this supposed new tough stance that Rishi Sunak is striking isn't nearly tough enough 
and that he won't characterise China as a threat and so on, and therefore he's letting the side down. That that point was made at Prime Minister's Questions on on Wednesday, and I suppose that says something, again, about the sense that the Conservative Party is, an on, is in an ongoing state of disarray. Well, they don't seem to have any. They don't seem to have any sense that unity is like a. It would would be organisationally good for them, you know. And and that is quite. It's quite a weird spectacle because even when they don't have anything to fall out over, they're they're still falling out. <laughs> it's like it's, they've set fire to something really important. It's really easy to destroy that sense of discipline and unity. It's very 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 hard to get it back once you've torched it. Do you think, Raft, is that, that that does say something about about the conservative state of chaos? That ordinarily a prime minister, certainly when he's just made it into Downing Street, would make a point about foreign policy, and you wouldn't expect sort of noticeable internal dissent to kick off about it. And yet, such is the state of the Conservative Party. That that's exactly what's happened. It, it was a set piece speech in pretty core, cool, you know, as currently stands in conservative territory. Uh, Rishi Sunak is very, very bad at making any kind of political weather. I mean, he's been in for now for a couple of months and with the exception of the autumn statement, which is, yeah, everyone has to turn and pay attention at that moments like that. There really hasn't been a moment where politics has been about something Rishi Sunak wants to talk about on his terms. He doesn't, he does not achieving that. And that's just a bad political operation, but also just don't underestimate the levels of defeatism and fatalism in the Conservative Party among Conservative MPs now are, are astonishing. It's amazing how many of them just think they've lost already. They might, not, they might be wrong, but they feel that very strongly. It does feel like the downward slide continues. On that note, we will call it a day. Thank you for joining us this week, Raf and Zoe. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's very varied, diverse episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.